Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Paul writes, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Henrietta Green, known as Hetty, holds the notorious reputation as the world's greatest miser. When she died in 1916 at the age of 81, her estate was worth approximately $100 million, roughly $3 billion in today's dollars. And yet Hetty was so tight-fisted, she refused to turn the heat on in her room. She never used hot water. She ate cold oatmeal and cheap pies to save money. In fact, she washed the dirtiest portion of her dresses, the hems, only the, the hems of her dresses, so she could save money on soap. Once she searched her carriage all night long just to find a lost postage stamp that was worth two cents. When Hetty's only son, Ned, broke his leg, his mom tried to admit him into a free clinic for the poor. When she was found out, she took him home, vowing to treat his wounds herself. They say that eventually Ned's leg had to be amputated because of Hetty's reluctance to spend the money on his treatment. This was one stingy gal. And yet, sadly, this is the life lived by many Christians. Our accounts are full of blessings from which we never draw. Our spiritual pantry is stocked with all we need, and yet we live our days starving and hungry. One of my favorite Bible commentators, Alexander McLaren, he writes this, Alas, that when we might have so much, we do have so little. It's not that God hasn't blessed us. As we've been studying in Ephesians, he's lavished his blessings upon us. It's that we fail to take advantage of his rich treasures. In the first 14 verses here in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul lays out for us in one long colossal sentence who we are and what we have in Christ. And quite frankly, our inheritance is breathtaking. In Christ, we're chosen and holy and blameless and loved and pre-picked and adopted as sons and daughters and graced and accepted, and redeemed, and forgiven of all our sins, out of the riches of his grace, we're made part of a plan that has a glorious ending. 
We've been given an eternal inheritance, even a foretaste of heaven through the mark and seal of the Holy Spirit. The breadth of our blessings are astonishing. Reading Ephesians chapter 1 verses 1 through 14 is like a person receiving a financial statement with a massive list of assets. You know there are two types of assets. There's fixed assets and there's liquid assets. And it's like a pendulum. Liquid on one end, fixed is on the other end. And all a person's assets fit somewhere on that pendulum. Cash, for example, is the most liquid of the assets. It's readily accessible for a person to use. Whereas equipment is most fixed. For its value to become accessible, it has to be disassembled and sold to a capable buyer. Savings accounts and money markets are more on the liquid end, whereas real estate and vehicles are more on the fixed end. And this is what makes wealth such a tricky business. Theoretically, a person with a 1918 Model T Ford has $50,000 in value. That's the car's price. But that's only if he finds a buyer for the car. A rare car might be more liquid than a parcel of property, but it's more fixed than a savings bond. It has value. But if I lose my job and go broke and I can't sell the car, it does me very little good, does it? I can't eat upholstery and spark plugs and rubber tires. You see, the question in a crisis becomes, how fast can I liquefy my assets? How fast can I cash in on the wealth that I possess? And this is the question that we should be asking ourselves about these spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. In a sense, forgiveness is a fixed asset. It's set in stone. The Bible declares that my faith in Jesus has gained for me forgiveness of sins. But what if I'm haunted by my past and I'm overcome by guilt and I'm feeling ashamed and condemned? How liquid is God's forgiveness? How quickly can I cash in on that in the moment of my need? Heaven, you could say, is a fixed asset. But when the evil of this world crowds in and tries to suffocate my faith, how accessible to me is the joy and the power and the peace of heaven? You see, Paul wants these blessings in Christ not only to be fixed, but to be liquid. Riches that we can cash in at a moment's notice, at the point of our weakness. When a touch of heaven is what we need right now, right here on earth. Here's another way to say it. He wants us to tangibilize our blessings. Now you don't have to check and you don't have to tell me the word tangibilize is not in the Webster's Dictionary. But it fits exactly what I'm trying to say. To tangibilize. It means to make something that's spiritual tangible. To make something that's mystical, relatable, and grippable. It brings what's spiritual into my physical reality. It makes the intangible become tangible. To most of us, spiritual blessings, talk of spiritual blessings. This is sort of an ethereal thing, an otherworldly kind of mystical stuff. We brush up against it on rare occasion, but we live our lives in the reality of this physical world. The problem, though, is that we don't bring that spiritual into our physical. 
Here's one man's observation. He says, the problem with the church is that it doesn't practice the gospel. We preach it, pray it, and sing it, but we just don't tangibilize it. I like that word. And this is Paul's desire for all of these blessings that he's listed. He wants us to experience the reality of our spiritual riches. Unlike a heady green, we should enjoy and benefit from the wealth that we've been given in Christ. Hey, you should realize Jesus paid for these blessings with his precious blood. How dare we let them lie dormant and waste away? We want to experience his blessings to the max. And how does Paul suggest we do it? Well, by prayer. After listing out all of our blessings, Paul doesn't stop there. He then asks God to tangibilize these blessings in his church. This is the purpose of Paul's prayer here in verse 15. It runs through the end of the chapter. Paul is praying for his readers. And he begins in verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Boy, much can get accomplished through prayer. You know, on occasion, we run across a prayer in Scripture. And when we do, we should pay close attention. For God has embedded these prayers in his word for our learning. You know, I've found that the best way to learn to pray is by example. You remember the disciples, when they came to Jesus, they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And he responded to them with a prayer, with a model prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. The implication is that you learn to pray by praying. Prayer is something that's better caught than it is taught. And in Ephesians, we find two such prayers that Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus. Here and then later in chapter 3. We'll discuss it then. You know, Paul was in a habit of praying for his friends. I, I believe the greatest favor that you can do for a friend is to pray for them. But if you'd like to bless me, you should pray. That's the greatest way that you can bless another person. You know, sometimes we'll say, sorry, but all I can really do for you is pray. Don't be sorry. Because that's the greatest blessing you can give anyone is your prayers. For you to intercede with God on my behalf, nothing could have a greater impact. I like the old saying, never put anyone down unless it's on your prayer list. <laughs> Often we pray for only people that are in trouble who are backslidden or snake-bitten. But Paul prayed for the Ephesians because of the goodness he saw in them. He said, when I heard of your faith in the Lord and your love for all the saints, man, I saw some good things in you, and that's what motivated me to pray. You know, it's interesting, he mentions their love. Boy, this is the mark of real Christianity. Jesus said the world will know that we're his followers if we have love for one another. E. Stanley Jones said of his conversion, of his coming to Christ, he said, when I was converted and rose from my knees, the first thing I wanted to do was put my arms about the world. A person who knows Christ will also know love. As verse 15 implies, faith and love go hand in hand. Faith in Jesus always produces love for all the saints. And notice that word all. I find that interesting. You know, we all come from different places and occupations and backgrounds. But the Christian emphasis is not on where we've been, but it's on where we're headed. 
And we're all going in the same direction. We'll all one day be gathered up together in Christ Jesus. I like this quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, the Ephesians not only love those whom they happen to like, but all the saints. Not only the clever ones, not only the learned ones, not only the pleasant ones, not only those who are being, belong to a particular social stratum. No, all the saints. We do not ask, where has he come from? What school has he attended? What is his bank balance? We are interested in one thing only. Is he a child of God? Is he my brother? Are we related? They loved all the saints. And in verse 17, Paul begins his prayer for his friends there in Ephesus. He says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now here's Paul's first request. That God would give to these Ephesians insight into the knowledge of who he is. You see, this is a human being's greatest attainment. The knowledge of God. I love Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this. That he understands and knows me. Here's real wealth. Here's real power. It's the knowledge of God. There was an ancient Greek axiom carved into the temple of Apollo, used frequently by Plato Know thyself. This same maxim has become the cornerstone of modern psychology. Self knowledge, self awareness is supposedly the key to our peace and our happiness. But not so, says Paul. The key to unraveling this tangled knot called life, making sense of our messy world, is not know thyself. Hey, I've gotten to know myself and I don't really like me too much. Hey, the key is to know God. That's the key. You've heard this. Know God, no peace. But know God, no peace. You see, this is the ultimate prize. This is the secret for which the sages of the ages have longed. It's the knowledge of God. David, that poet king of Israel, he wrote in the 42nd Psalm, As a deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. The mighty Moses cried out, Show me your glory. Paul was a Christian 30 years when he wrote to the Philippians and he said, This one thing I do that I may know him. Augustine, a leader of the early church, he wrote of his intoxicating experience with God. He said, You called, you cried, you shattered my deafness, you sparkled, you blazed, you drove away my blindness, you shed your fragrance, and I drew in my breath, and I pant for you. Hey, these were all people who wanted to know Jesus. They weren't just content with knowing about him, about God, or even hearing from someone who knew him, or even interacting with him casually or from a distance. Their goal was to know Christ up close and personal. What is your goal? Listen to the lyrics from this old hymn. Beyond the sacred page I seek thee, Lord. My spirit pants for thee, O living word. O send thy spirit, Lord, now to me, 
that he may touch my eyes and make me see. But I love this first line. Notice it again. Beyond the sacred page, I seek thee. Now, don't misunderstand. I love the sacred page. I am a student of God's holy word, the Bible, and I encourage you to be as well. But you see, the point of the Bible isn't just to disperse information. The Bible introduces us to God. The point of the Bible is to help us know the God of the Bible. There is an experiential knowledge of God that runs beyond the page, that runs deeper than the page. It brings the page to life. It's when you touch God and are gripped by God. A relationship with God that's contrary to the sacred pages of Scripture is never a legitimate experience. But there is an encounter that occurs beyond the page. It's deeper. It's more personal. It's more intimate. And entering into this experience is not the result of your own quest or your own search. It's not up to us to flush God out into the open as if he's shy, as if he's some quail that needs to be rustled from the bushes. We don't coax God down from heaven through mindless meditation or through the allure of crystals or by rubbing the beads or saying the Hail Marys or by staring at our navel and chanting ancient mantras or making sacrifices or keeping commandments or following laws. For us to know God, he has to reveal himself to us. You you need to know God is too holy. He is too infinite for us to approach him on our own. He is too high. Understand, God lives in rarefied air. You and I could never survive his altitude. Knowing God isn't up to us reaching up to him. It's God bending down to us. This is the only way for us to know God. You know, it's foolish to believe that all roads lead to God. For no roads lead to God. It takes God coming down to us for us to know him. Here's how to experience God. Position yourself in Christ. By faith, trust in Jesus Christ. For only in Christ, we're told, are you chosen and adopted and accepted and forgiven? And then like Paul, pray that God sends to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. You see, it's in Christ that we go online. I can't explain it. (laughs) I mean, it's nothing short of a miracle. God reveals himself to you. It's Christ in you, in you, in Christ. You enter this interactive relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's amazing. Romans chapter 8 verse 16 explains it this way. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's the spirit who bears witness with our spirit who touches us and connects with us. A conveyance begins under the surface of our lives. On a heart level the Holy Spirit creates in us a sensitivity to God's presence and all of his blessings. You know, when Jesus walked the earth, he was confined to a body. Thus, he could only be at one place and at one time. But after his resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven. And he sent the Holy Spirit to take his place. And now God's Spirit carries on this constant interaction with all believers in all places at all times. 
Thinking of the disciples who witnessed Jesus' return to heaven, Augustine summed it up for all of us. He said, Jesus departed from our sight that we, now trusting in him, might return to our heart and there find him. For he departed and he is here. He departed, but he is here. This is made possible by the spirit of revelation. During the Great Depression, times were tough, jobs were scarce. The, only the telegraph office was hiring. The job opening was receiver. And the job's only qualification was a working knowledge of Morris Code. You know, that system of taps and touches. The waiting room was packed with applicants. Everyone was mixing and mingling. There was quite a commotion going on. Obviously late, one fellow walked in and he sat down in the office quietly. Not five minutes later, he jumped up and he walked straight into the boss's office of his own volition. Everyone in the room was ticked off. He'd broken in line. He was the last one to get there and the first one to get an interview. That's not fair. But soon after, the boss emerged along with the rude fellow who'd broken in line. The boss announced that the guy had gotten the job. Everyone else should go home. You see, here's what had happened. While everyone was chit-chatting in the foyer, the boss was in the other room tapping in Morris code the message. First person to hear this message and walk into my office gets the job. But only one person was so tuned in that he could hear beyond the din of the room noise and heed the call. And you see, this is true in life. God will give us the spirit. He has given us the spirit of revelation. But it can be drowned out by the hustle and bustle of this world. Are you listening for the tapping? Are you picking up on the messages from the other room? You know, I've talked to folks who tell me, Pastor Sandy, if I could just see God, then I'd believe. But none of us see spiritual realities with physical eyes. We need inner eyes. And that's what Paul prays for next in verse 18. That the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Now, at first glance, this is a strange phrase, isn't it? You probably didn't know that your understanding had eyes. When our kids were little, Kathy's understanding of children, their motive and their behavior was so keen that she could predict their next move. She still can, as a matter of fact. But she, for a long time, she had our kids convinced that she had eyes in the back of her head. I remember Zach once trying to part her hair and trying to find her eyes back there behind her head. But an understanding with eyes? What's that? You know, it's interesting to track down the biblical references to our spiritual anatomy. You know, the Bible ascribes to the spirit of a man the same senses that his body possesses. In fact, here's a list. John 3 verse 3 implies that the spirit of a man can see. We have eyes. Matthew 13 verse 9, the inner man has ears to hear. Psalm 34 verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. In Philippians 4 verse 18, the generosity of the Philippians was like a sweet smell, a smelling aroma to God and to Paul. Spiritually, we can also see and hear and taste and smell. Apparently, our understanding has eyes. 
You know, it's one thing to know a truth intellectually. But it's quite another to see how that truth applies personally and practically. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples concerning the fickle faith of the multitudes? He said, seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. They saw, and they heard, and they understood the facts of what was happening, but not its implications. You could say it like this. Some people drink at the fountain of knowledge. Others just gargle. That's true spiritually. You know, we've all choked on the dust that we created when we swept the floor. But there was a janitor named Murray Spangler who had an idea. Why not suck up the dust rather than stir up the dust? He designed a crude but workable vacuum cleaner. And he talked a friend into investing in the idea. Guess the name of his friend. H.W. Hoover. That's right. Isaac Newton saw an apple fall from a tree. And he deduced from that familiar event the theory of gravity. James Watt was watching a kettle boil. It prompted him to develop the idea for the first steam engine. I've stirred up dust. And I've seen apples fall. And I've watched kettles boil. But that's all I saw. (laughs) My understanding lacked eyes. It lacked the eyes that Spangler had and Watts had and Newton had. See, it's one thing to see. It's another thing to really see. The potentials, the possibilities, the ramifications. Information and insight are very different things. Information is a knowledge of the facts, but insight is the wisdom to take those facts and use them for your advantage. And this is what Paul is praying for the Ephesians, for insight. You see, he's been itemizing their spiritual blessings, but that's not enough. He says it's time to tangibilize this treasure. It's time to realize these riches. It's time to cash in on what we have in Christ. And Paul especially wants God to open our eyes to three truths. Verse 18, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? I mean, are your eyes wide open to the hope of your calling? To his inheritance in the saints? And to the greatness of his power toward us who believe? Realize that in Christ, you have this grand and glorious calling. You have been chosen and adopted as a child of God. That makes you a co-heir with Christ. That's incredible. I mean, you could be the president of the United States or the queen of England or the coach of the Georgia Bulldogs and it'd be a step down. We have the highest calling known to man. Did you know that in Christ, my friend, you're somebody special? But do you really know it? Have you tangibilized this calling? Oh, we nod when the pastor talks about our adoption, but does the truth that we're beloved by God send goosebumps down our spine? Do we leave out of here with our chest a little bit more stuck out and our eyes twinkling just a bit? I mean, does it excite us as it should? Here's a truth that should grip us and elevate us. 
and change everything about us, especially how we see ourselves. You and I are kids of the King. We have a high calling in Christ Jesus. Here's a truth that boosts a person's self-worth. Here's a truth that bolsters their resolve and purpose. Here's a truth that immunizes you from the opinions of man. Here's a truth that sets you on a Godward trajectory and nothing is able to knock you off course. As Leonard Ravenhill once said, the Christian who has the smile of God needs no status symbols. But again, do I get it? This truth, do I get the truth of this truth? I mean, if you really embrace the hope of your calling, how can you ever lower your standards in your pursuit of daily life? If you realize what Christ thinks of you, then why would you get bummed out because Susie down the street didn't invite you to her Tupperware party? Big deal. If you relish who you are in Christ, you won't be upset when the world doesn't award you its accolades. Here's my point. Have you tangibilized your calling, this high calling? And are your eyes open to his inheritance in the saints? Now, earlier in the chapter, we talked about our inheritance in Christ. But God also has an inheritance. And guess what it is? And here's where you need to hold on to your hat, man, because this is a shocker. God's inheritance is you. You are God's treasure. You are his fabulous fortune. God in heaven longs to receive you and clothe you in his glory. In Psalm chapter 2 verse 8, God the Father says to his son Jesus, Ask of me. And I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Jesus asked something of God. And what does he ask for? He asks for you. We are God's inheritance. In John 17, when Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, a familiar passage, numerous times there, he refers to his disciples both then and now as those that the Father has given to him. We are his reward. We are the father's gift to his son. Hebrews 12 verse 2 tells us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. But why did Jesus submit to the cross? What was in it for him, so to speak? It was you. Fellowship with you was the joy that was set before him. That's what prompted him to endure the cross. I'm convinced none of us have the slightest inkling of just how great a love God has for us. Last Sunday, Kathy and I and James and Donna, we attended Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And it was strange not seeing my pastor, Pastor Chuck, there. But they opened the service that morning with one of Pastor Chuck's favorite hymns. I've heard him sing it many times. It's by Frederick Lehman. It's called The Love of God. And I love the final stanza. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole. Though stretched from sky to sky. 
We read these words and we're stunned by their imagery. But have we tangibilized his love for us? Do the eyes of your understanding see just how much God values you? If so, why do you shed tears at night and bemoan how lonely you feel? If so, why are you so upset that the office crowd has decided to turn against you? You're loved with a depth of love that's unimaginable. You're precious to God. Why don't you warm your heart by that fire? But Pastor Sandy, I need some, someone tangible. I need something I can see and touch and hear. But you don't. That's the point of this prayer. You don't need that. What you need is faith to tangibilize God's love. Hebrews 11 verse 1 tells us faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is what tangibilizes these spiritual realities. Mix in some faith and these things become real. It brings substance to what would otherwise elude us. Paul is praying here that God opens your spiritual eyes to the hope of your calling and to his inheritance in the saints, but also, also, that he opens your eyes to the greatness of of his power toward us who believe. And Paul goes on to describe the magnitude of this power. He says, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of he in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet. And gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You know, it's interesting. Whenever the Old Testament writers speak of God's power, they always measure it up against the creation. Or against Noah's flood. Or against the exodus from Egypt. Or some other epic event. But whenever the New Testament writers want to reference the greatness of God's power, you know what they point to? Always. They point to the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the cross of Christ is the greatest power plug. God's greatest unleashing of power was the work of Jesus what Jesus did to redeem the world back to God eclipses what God did to create it in the first place. Jesus died and he rose and he ascended to God's right hand, the place of ultimate authority. And today, angelic ranks and principalities in heavens and on earth all fall under his jurisdiction. Every name will bow to Jesus. Unless we ever get confused, Jesus has authority in and over his church. Jesus is the king of his church. I love this imagery. The church is the body and Jesus is its head. You know, this means that the church is lost without Jesus. Imagine a body without a head. It's uncoordinated, it's useless, it's as good as dead. But flip that analogy. It's equally stunning. Jesus compares himself to the head of a body. But a head isn't complete without the rest of the body. And this is what Jesus wants you to know. That he's not complete without you. That he longs for you. That he wants you. That he wants your loyalty and your cooperation. He wants you to join him 
and to know him. Without the body, the head isn't complete. And thus his plans are crippled. Never forget how important you are to Jesus. And he wants to open the eyes of your understanding to something incredible here. To the greatness of his power. And it boggles the brain that God wants to plug us into the same power that held Jesus to the cross and conquered death and exalted him to the place of supreme and ultimate authority. This very same power. And I have to admit to you, I can read that and I can understand that intellectually and I can preach that, but my experience of that, it still falls short. You know, here's what I need to do. I need to tangibilize some truth. For there is power out there that I'm leaving on the table. There's blessing out there that I'm not accessing. I need faith. Listen again to Alexander McLaren's insightful words. He writes this. How do we know a power? By thrilling beneath its force. In, in other words, how do you learn the power of a waterfall? But by standing underneath its crash. He says, so how are we to know the greatness of the power of God? But because it comes surging and rejoicing into our aching emptiness and lifts us buoyant above our temptations and weaknesses. Paul was asking that their spirits might be saturated with and immersed in that great ocean of force that pours from God. And my question to us this morning is, do we dare ask? Do we dare ask the same for God to saturate us and overwhelm us with this same force of power? Why are we looking at our sins and our weaknesses as if they're mountains that can't be scaled? Don't you believe God's power can lift you over every obstacle? How dare we capitulate? How dare we not even try when the power of the Almighty beats beneath our breastbone? Here's what our faith needs to see. Again, look closely with me in verse 19. To whom is God's power intended? Divine power is directed. It's intended. It's earmarked for those of us who believe. For those who believe. Do you and I really believe? Here's how you tangibilize your high calling and his love for you and the resurrection power of Jesus. It might not be easy, but it is so simple. You believe. You ignore everything that tells you not to. Your doubts and your fears and your skepticisms and your worries and your falsehoods and your opinions of your friends and you plunge head first into faith. That's how you know these things. You stop toying with the blessings that you've been given. You start banking on them. You believe in them. You stop living like a spiritual miser. And you start cashing in. Jesus has earned abundant resources for you to spend. They're fixed, but they are also as liquid as your faith is strong. Believe and pray and tangibilize this treasure. Ask for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. Ask for that. Ask for that this morning. Pray that God opens your inner eyes to the hope of your calling and to his inheritance in the saints and to the exceeding greatness of his power toward us. 
I'll sum it all up in an old saying that offers good advice. Stay under the spout where the blessings come out. You ever heard that? Stay under the spout where the blessings come out. That's God's word to us today. Have faith, my friends, and be filled.